Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Well, all right, welcome to another episode of Porch Talk. This is your host, Alan, and today we are burning the phone lines over in Boston to talk to Linda Marks. So, Linda, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Great. And so, uh, you've been you've been playing and making music for some time. How did all that start for you? Well, if we go to the very beginning, when I was a little girl... I literally had music inside of me. I didn't talk till I was three years old, but I would go find any piano I could possibly find and toddle my way over, and I'd start playing it and starting to write music even when I was a toddler. Yes, ma'am. And when I was um, three, and oh, by the way, the first word I, I learned was piano, so I kept saying piano over and over and over again to my parents' dismay. <laughs> it, and, it wasn't mom or daddy, huh? Sorry? It wasn't mom or daddy, huh? <laughs> it's piano. Well, my, my we didn't have a piano in my house, and my father would tell me over and over again, music is a waste of a good mind. He was totally discouraging the passion I was showing as a small child. So my mom, when I was three years old, found this free recorder program at a place called the Laundry School of Music in Boston. And so my mom had me go to that thinking, okay, she really wants a piano. Maybe this will be like a way to sort of get her distracted away from the piano. And I had no interest in learning to play the recorder, but the people in the program said that I was gifted and talented and my parents should really encourage me, which unfortunately made my father continue to say music is a waste of a good mind. So I had to fight for music rather than be supported in it. And there was a free Suzuki violin program when I was in grammar school. So even though I had no interest in the violin, I started to do that because it was free. And then eventually 
I think I was 11, I'd saved up enough money, whether I was mowing lawns or shoveling snow or having lemonade stands or painting rocks and selling them, whatever a little kid could do. I saved up some money and there was a store called New England Woodwind that had a flood. So I got a classical Aria guitar with the money I had because they had like really good prices because of the flood. So then I got guitar charts and started to teach myself guitar because I didn't have a piano. Mm-hmm. And then when I was 13 years old, I finally saved up enough money to get a piano for myself. And I used the yellow pages because back in those days, there wasn't the internet. And there was a place called Acme Piano, which is sort of funny because they're the Roadrunner cartoons with the Wiley e. Coyote when I was a little kid. <laughs> right. So everything was Acme and Roadrunner. So I figured Acme would be a good place to call and get a piano. So um, I found a piano I could afford. It was a Ricka and Sons upright piano. So I walked into the living room. I told my parents, I saved the money. I looked in the yellow pages. I found the piano. I can't drive. I'm 13 years old. Please drive me to the store. And where can I put the piano? Mm -hmm. So at that point, I think they realized I was serious. But it was put on the one season porch, meaning it was freezing except in the summer. And I wasn't allowed to play when anyone was home. But the, you know, without continuing all the little nuanced details, um, I turned that story into what's going to be the title song of my 2020 album, The Piano, the whole story of how hard the little girl had to try to be able to have a piano and learn to play the piano. But once I had one, I was really happy and I wrote my eighth grade graduation song and the entire eighth grade class sang it with me. And that was my first composition that was performed by a group of people in public when I was 12 years old or 13 years old. And I went to Yale and in spite of the fact that I didn't have the, the, privileged background of many of the people there, I ended up um, both co-founding Yale's third women's acapella singing group called Something Extra when I was a 17-year-old freshman with three other women, and it's still there today. And I ended up majoring in music and getting a degree with honors and distinction as a songwriter and had my first round as a professional musician in my early 20s in the Boston music scene. I met a wonderful woman named Lisa Wexler at the Arlington Laundromat during her rinse cycle, and we wrote music and performed together for three years, and that included at Club Passim in Boston. My first album came out in the the mid-1980s, and the Boston radio stations like my music a lot, but I started to both feel it would be hard to make a living doing that, and I was also an introvert, and I really preferred performing in a duo and not solo, and long and short of it, I call it the undertow of life sort of took me under. I eventually, my son is now 23, I was actually just on the phone with him before we started to talk here. And I had to raise him as a single mom from when he was two on and had no child support. There was no way I could be a professional musician under those circumstances. So the music had to go underground. And when he was about 12, I couldn't really take it anymore. So I started creeping back out. But then my mom had Alzheimer's. So I was literally in the middle of what I call the intergenerational sandwich. And every step forward I'd take, I'd have three steps back. So until my mom died four and a half years ago, I couldn't do it a hundred percent, but I have my in grace album, which will drop on September 1st is my sixth album since 2014. So when I finally got to go full, full steam, I really have been going a thousand percent. And my album called the piano that comes out in 2020 will be the seventh album since 2014. Great. And so just to back up just a touch. And so Mm -hmm. from three 
uh, to the point of getting that piano when you were 13, uh, mm-hmm. your musical influence, who who were you listening to? I'm guessing there wasn't a record player in the home. Well, the, the, the interesting thing is my father sort of got obsessed with records at some point. I can't remember if I, it was when I was that young or when I was older, but there was a point he got obsessed with records and actually got a record player. And um, I don't know if, it, I don't think it was his records. I was the kind of kid who somehow always found my way to music even if it wasn't what was in the home, just like I found myself a job at Fenway Park working for the Red Sox, you know, even though it wasn't because my family took me to Red Sox games, I actually went by myself. But people like Carol King, like when I was young, Carol King and James Taylor and Carly Simon and Linda Ronstadt and Carla Bonoff, mm-hmm. their music was influential to me. And Burt Backrack and Hal David and Dionne Warwick when I was a kid, you know, they were influential to me. And actually, my mom liked Harry Belafonte um, and the Kingston Trio when I was a little kid, a very, very little kid. So, you know, I I listened to some of that music. um, And then somehow I found myself getting interested in musicals like Godspell was one and Pippin. So when I was when I was a kid, I actually would go out and buy the sheet music to like Godspell or Pippin and learn all the songs. So I was... What I, I found myself noticing were all kinds of songs, and even like on In Grace, a song that I put on is um, from the Cornelius Brothers and Sister Rose from 1978. It's too late to turn back now because that just I always like the song and its beat, and it's a good dance song. So I wasn't ever someone who listened to just one kind of music. I listened to whatever music really interested me. And even when I worked at Fenway Park as a teenager, they played all kinds of music in the the stands before the game and so I listened to all that music so you know whether it's singer-songwriter or Broadway or Calypso or pop music that they play in in the music stands before a game at Fenway Park I I listened to it all okay and now going into eighth grade um the graduation song um Mm -hmm. how did how did how did that come to be was that was that a goal you had set out for that year were you asked to do that and like the words behind it how did all that come to be i just wrote it um (laughs) which is typical of me it's like something strikes me and i write it it's it's not like i set a goal it's something touches me and it was called um nine years is a lifetime because the school did k through eighth grade and that you know i was just struck by when you're 13 years old and you're graduating from a grammar school that's K through eight, that is most of your life. You know, I, I was always on the young end cause my birthday's at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. So I was four years old, you know, when I started and you know, it's, it's a big deal when you're 12 or 13 years old to have just spent nine years, you know, in a school with people. So I wrote a whole song about the journey of the nine years and everyone sang it together you know, because everyone related to it and everyone felt like I sort of expressed the heart of the journey. So it just sort of happened. And that's how I write music. Something touches me, something is poignant, and then I write something. And so graduating high school, um, when you were picking out your college and it would be Yale, Mm -hmm. um, the admission process and getting accepted, what was that like? Well, it was very competitive and sort of you know, scary because 
schools like that, you know, have a very low acceptance rate. But I was always a leader, even though I was an, a shy introvert of a kid. I've always been what I call a social architect. So when something needs to be done in a community, when an organization needs to be founded, when people need to be facilitated in groups, I just intuitively would do that. So even even as a grammar school kid, I got elected eighth grade president even though I didn't want to run and I sat on the stage and talked from my heart and got elected because people just sensed that and I got put on town committees when I was that young because I just had sort of a an intuitive sense that most kids didn't have so you know when I applied to Yale besides the fact that I had really good grades because I worked really hard and I'd done a lot of community service I also was a natural leader so I had really good recommendations and I'd worked at Fenway Park and I'd worked at a Brigham's job and so I think all of the things put together led me to get into I actually applied to all the Ivy League schools and I got into all of them and I got to choose which one I wow. went to which I was grateful for and I went to Yale both because it had beautiful architecture but also because it had a culture of music and in those days acapella singing groups weren't as popular as they are now but Yale's acapella music culture was very strong and so I basically went to Yale to do music even though I was like a singer songwriter who had more of a jazz interest in a school where everyone else was classical and I was sort of like the odd person out but the the best part is there was a man named Maury Esten, who was the chairman of the music department, and he wrote Broadway musicals. In fact, he ended up winning a Tony for, um, I can't remember which is which because I'm dyslexic. Fellini had a movie, and one was nine and a half and one was ten. I think the movie was nine and a half, and, and Maury's um, musical was ten. But he was writing the musical at the time, and he was a songwriter. So he was like the one person I could really relate to when I was there, and I was really grateful for that. Yeah. So anyhow, you know, I, I went to Yale because it had a strong music culture and that was important to me. And so what junior, sophomore, when did you found the, the third acapella? The, um, I co-founded it with three other women my freshman year when I was 17 years old. Wow. Yeah. And it was sort of fun because... I've always liked having a duo partner, and when I was 17, I met another woman whose name was Robin, who was another freshman, and I was writing music and arranging music, and, you know, I'd have her sing with me, and whether I sang lead and had her do harmony, or she sang lead and I do harmony, we were working on it, so she was one of the other co-founders, and then we met these two other women, Laurie Ann and Teresa, and somehow we got together, and somehow we started to find this, found the singing group, and the way it, that its name was really funny, because... We had, there are things called jams for acapella groups, at least there were when I was at Yale. So a jam was coming up and we wanted our singing group to be part of that. And we didn't have a name. So we had to quickly come up with a name. So I think we just said, okay, we're, we'll just be something extra, like something extra for the jam. The name stuck and now it's many decades later and something extra has been there quite a long time. And so do you still get to interact with those girls? Well, there's a there's an alumni association, and every now and then, whoever's like the um, the organizer for whatever class there is at Yale, they'll write to all the alumni. So I've gotten the newsletters, and I've sent feedback now and then. So if I wanted to go to Yale, I could probably meet the current something extra members. Um, but I've mostly just gotten like the newsletters and written things back by email. I got you. And so getting out of college and. Um playing around Boston and we'll take it up to today what is what's that music scene like and 
with Boston, what uh, is it? Is it very diverse in what Boston enjoys? You mentioned classical and uh, you know uh, musicals, jazz. Yeah. Were, were all these big parts of Boston's music history and culture? I wouldn't know if they were all parts of Boston's music history and culture. I can talk about some different threads. Um, In the jazz world, there's a man named Fred Taylor who is well into his 90s now, who's an amazing person, and he really created the jazz scene in Boston. Um, There was a place called Paul's Mall, and he eventually founded a place called Scholars Jazz Club where I have performed. And unfortunately, in 2017, the hotel that, that had Scholars Um, They had different management and they didn't really value what he did, even though he made a a regular hotel into a world class destination because of the music that they brought that he brought in. And he also supported local people like myself so that I got to play there. um, And I really appreciated it. So I was really sad when Fred was removed because it hasn't been the same. But for many, many years, Fred Taylor has been the heart of the jazz world in Boston in terms of the singer song a writer or the, you know, the folk or the acoustic music, um, Passim has been that when I was in my twenties, that's when I played there for the first time with my friend Lisa opening for Buskin and Bateau, um, who we still are in touch with. And in fact, I recorded one of David Buskin's songs on my In Grace album, his song All in All, which I've liked ever since the 1980s. I think he wrote it in 1985 and I've always loved it. So I arranged that song for myself on piano and voice with violin and cello and it's on my album and a very poignant moment was when um, David and Robin were at Passim last month it was on the 4th of July I gave each of them the the new album that's coming out September 1st and acknowledged to David that I'd chosen to do one of his songs so he hadn't planned to do it in his set that night but he did and then sure enough he called out that someone in the audience had arranged it on their new album and I cried it was very poignant so wow Club Passim is a place that has, for the singer-songwriter acoustic music community, been an important place. And when I released my 2018 album, Moments, I did it there at Club Passim. Another another wonderful venue that's grown over the last four or five years is called The Burren in Somerville. A wonderful man named Tom Bianchi has grown that community. And he crosses over all kinds of genres, lots of singer-songwriters, but, you know, whether it's pop, whether it's rock whether it's, you know, almost anything, you know, it's, it's a wonderful, vibrant place for music to happen. And that's where I'm going to release in grace on October 13th at the Burren. Um, and then recently there's a place called Cine winery that is a national chain that has come to Boston. In fact, right around when Fred was let go of from scholars is when city winery came into Boston and they've picked up some of the jazz, but they also have, you know, they cross over all different genres and many people that tour nationally come through. And I, I actually helped produce and sang in, um, a Lady Lake showcase at City Winery on June 23rd. I'm a Lady Lake artist and City Dadamo in, um, she's from Florida, curates artists and she is a social media promoter. So myself and someone from Texas named David Martinez and another Massachusetts-based duo, Laurie Diamond and Fred Apatelli, the three of us performed at City Winery in a showcase there. So that's another really vibrant place. But 
be even beyond sort of the big places like that. And there's a place called Club Cafe, which is the top cabaret venue in the city. Um, there are also local community art centers. There are a number of coffee houses. There's a coffee house circuit, but there are also literal coffee houses in different communities that do some music. So farmers markets have community have music. So basically. I'd say Boston has a very strong music scene and a very strong singer-songwriter scene. Yeah. And it's I think it's a very vibrant place to be. And I, I like the supportiveness in the singer-songwriter community. I don't know the classical music community so well. There is the Boston Symphony Orchestra and there's Tanglewood in Western Massachusetts. But because I'm not a classical player, I don't know the scene the same way as I know the others. Um, right. But the, the other piece I would just mention is I founded an artist alliance group a year and a half ago, along with a woman named Colette O'Connor and with Cindy Dadambo called the Women in Music Gathering. And we are an intergenerational group of women in music. I didn't realize it at the time, but my story that I told you about, you know, the, the having to be a professional musician twice with a couple decades in between and yeah. uh, rise up. You know, many other women struggle with how do you be a professional musician and, you know, deal with all your other responsibilities for your kids, for your parents, you know, for, for being a woman. And so this group is wonderful because we meet every other month and we do a song share and we also just talk about our journeys and support each other. But we also do shows together. We did a benefit concert for a local animal shelter in April at Club Cafe. Um, there's a room called the Hearing Room, which is a wonderful room that a lot of musicians come through. That's uh, in Lowell, Massachusetts, and we are doing a number of shows there. There's a venue called um, the Armory in Somerville, and we every three months we do a showcase there. At the Burren last year, we did a big showcase where 11 or 12 of our members were part of it, and we're doing it again November 3rd at the Burren. So we do community shows, sometimes for charity, sometimes just to show you know, this is the variety of a group of women in music, most of whom are singer-songwriters, but two of them are singers who aren't songwriters. And that kind of spirit can grow out of a place like Boston. Absolutely. And so you mentioned being a social architect. And so yes. tell me about uh, founding the salon and uh, yes. what, what that has meant uh, for that community. Yeah. So I have a, a house concert series called The Music Salon, and I moved to Waltham, Massachusetts four and a half years ago, and I specifically got a home that could do it. It's a modest home, so 20 to 25 people is a full house. Some people have these big, fancy homes where they can have 50 or more people, but not me. But the, a couple of pieces motivated that. One is I've always liked building community, and the purpose of the house concert series, The Music Salon, is to build community through music and art which it has done a magnificent job of doing. But the other side is a lot of venues have closed, a lot of important venues. There was a place called Riles Jazz Club that closed, a place called Johnny D's that closed. Um, in fact, another wonderful venue, which I'm not going to name yet because it hasn't yet closed, is in the process of closing due to commercial development in, in a suburb of Boston. So to have places that are serious listening rooms where people come because they really want to hear the music and also interact so because many of the people who come to the salons are musicians and artists too so to like have two-way dialogues is very meaningful and so basically i have a model where we begin with a potluck dinner then a featured visual artist and occasionally it's a poet not a visual artist presents and talks about their process and shares their work and then at seven o'clock we have 
music and I usually open sometimes with a duo partner and then we have a featured musical act who performs and I ask people to make a donation in my donations basket so that all the money goes to the featured musical artist. A featured visual artist is able to sell their work and that's the way they can get some money too. But the thing that's amazing is if you have, say, you know, 20 people who put, say, $15 on average into the basket, I ask if they can do 20 great, if not whatever you can, then a person can have $300 for playing a 75 to 90 minute set in a a really welcoming environment where there's healthy food and people actually talk to you and listen to you. And that's so much more than most clubs pay, which is really sad. So it, it basically values the artist in terms of people who really want to listen and interact and it also values them because the money that's put in goes directly to them i don't take a penny for myself and it's really a good model saying that art and music is valuable and so with the music saloon of maybe for those maybe coming to visit boston or maybe Mm -hmm. those in boston how often do you do a show and what are ways they can connect to it okay my, my website, lindamarksmusic.com, has all the music salon schedule on it. I do a salon every month, although in September I'm actually doing two. And it's always a Saturday. It isn't a particular Saturday. We sort of work out whoever the musician, the featured musician is what works. And, for example, in September we have an act coming down from upstate New York to play. And then the second one is a local jazz singer and the the first visual artist for the um, the earlier September show is coming up from Provincetown. The second visual artist lives in a suburb of this area. So sometimes, you know, the way the data set is, when is the person available to come in and how does it interact with my gig schedule too? But if the person wants to see the schedule, it's on my Linda Marks Music website under my calendar for the music salon. Yeah. And so just to just to go back and focus on your music, uh, I was uh-huh. reading the reviews from past albums, and um, man, you, you've really covered a lot of ground, and like a lot of the songs, like you wrote one from uh, the famous Boston baseball player, Ortiz. Yes, and, David Ortiz. Yeah, that one actually got quite a lot of media coverage, and it's a, an example of you just never know what's going to hit people, but... When David Ortiz was shot, I was pretty devastated for a lot of different reasons. He, in many ways, is is like a modern-day JFK, MLK kind of figure, because not only was he a fantastic athlete, but he also is an incredible community leader, and his charitable work is just absolutely extraordinary. He's done lots of work for children, both in the Dominican Republic and in this country, and actually... From the civic leader part, when we had the marathon bombing happen here, which was really devastating, he became the voice of Boston Strong. He stood up and basically brought people together, which is more like being a JFK or a Martin Luther King and not just a ball player. Absolutely. When I was a little girl, I identified with people like MLK and JFK because I was like them. I was a social architect person, a a person who always somehow was a, a voice of leadership. And because they were shot, I was afraid if I became myself, that would happen to me. And I have my own story about something that did happen to me on the way back from Benway Park where I almost lost my life. It wasn't through gun violence. It was through another kind of violence and I'm very grateful I'm here today but when David was shot 
it basically brought up all those images of that and my own experience. Thank God he is alive, but he had multiple, multiple injuries that could have killed him if he hadn't been an athlete and if someone hadn't grabbed him and taken him to the hospital in their own car within seven minutes of the incident. So that really shook me. And the first line that came out of me that, you know, when it happened is, why do we shoot our heroes? And I did research and realized David is 43 years old. He's going to turn 44 this year. And JFK and RFK and MLK were also in their 40s. There's something about being in your prime that, and when you're really out in the world and visible, people can be very jealous of, of the light they shine. So I wrote a song, you know, that looks at heroes and that they're people and how do we take care of them? And then it gets into the why do we shoot our heroes? And then it also, there's, you know, a hope that, you know, we can make some change in our time because we really need heroes and we really need people who inspire us. So anyhow, I wrote the song and then it turns out that a Boston Globe uh, columnist, well, not a columnist, the journalist named Bob Holler, who's a very high quality, very thoughtful journalist, wrote an article looking at the backdrop in which this happened and a lot of people don't believe the story that's out in the the sort of the mass information channels which it supposedly it was a case of mistaken identity that someone set up a hit on the guy sitting next to him and nobody believes it because the guy doesn't look anything like David Ortiz and considering that David is really well known and has done so much for so many people you can't mistake a guy who's like little and has a different skin color and different hair and much smaller for David Ortiz. So when Bob wrote his article, some of the things he was writing about literally mirrored the lyrics of my song. So I was really touched by that. So I reached out and sent him the song and he was good enough to really appreciate the song. And he ended up interviewing me and an article about the song was on the front page of the Boston Globe sports section a few weeks ago. So Great. that was pretty powerful. And so something else that caught my eye off your album, In Grace, the song Enough. Yes, yes. Um, I don't know how it is where you live because you're in a different part of the country, but where I live here in Massachusetts, there's something called the teardown epidemic. And in fact, even in the house I'm sitting in right now, you know, on my own street, it's happening on the street I live in. You know, I don't live in a super fancy house, but there are modest houses that were built in the 1950s and 60s that are the houses many people grew up in. And commercial developers now rip them down and make a house that uses the entire thumbprint of the lot and, and they make them like skinny and tall to get more square footage to make more money. And even more than that, um, town centers like the, the town I used to live in where I still have my therapy practice I'm a mind-body psychotherapist as my other work the whole, the whole town center has been torn down and it, a commercial developer after three years of the citizens fighting got permission to do this and you know the mom and pop businesses a camera shop a wonderful Lebanese restaurant are gone and now these big five-story buildings that are built with fiberboard, not even plywood, and makes me wonder how fire safe they are, are taking over. And it's basically making it so that people who've lived there their whole lives aren't going to be able to afford to live there. And I went to a meeting because the song that I wrote, which is all about the teardown epidemic, and you know, part of my message is simple is enough, 
beauty is enough. You know, children and flowers are enough. It's not just the commercial development thing. And so I was asked by a group of people who were studying the teardown epidemic and bringing together people from the city of Newton to talk about it. They, they wanted me to open the meeting with the song, which I did. And there were these people who done research and they were showing that even the people say, well, when you tear something down, what you build is more energy efficient. When you look at all the energy involved in tearing down the old house and the wasted materials and then the energy it takes to clear the lot and the energy it takes to make the new materials that are going to be built into the bigger house and then all the materials it takes to put all the stuff in the big house you're not saving energy, you're actually wasting more energy. And it's so big that even if it's more energy efficient, it still burns as much energy as the little house did. So anyhow, I wrote that article, I wrote that song, and it turned out to be relevant to an article that was written by a journalist named Kara Baskin in Boston Magazine, because she wrote a whole article about the teardown epidemic. And sure enough, she covered my song in the article. So that's a, that's a, a point of sadness for me because it's really nice to have simple and mom and pop businesses and even affordable homes so that you don't have to have a super high paying job in some high tech company to live in a community. Absolutely. To give you a a little backdrop of where I'm from, I live in Alabama on the state line, right uh, (laughs) Alabama and Mississippi. And so Mississippi is um, heavily influenced by the blues because of uh, slavery, sharecropping, and mm. all the history that goes along with that. And there are blues markers all around where I live. And so uh, Will Johnson, he's an artist from Texas, and he came recently to a house show to play the Sunstroke House, which is something very near and dear to my heart because I really appreciate what you're doing uh, with the, you know, with your salon. Mm-hmm. That is so special because people need that for the artist to be able to come and to sit in a room with people who want to hear them because going out to a bar or, you know, you, you pay, you know, you're paying for half the door and nobody really cares. Nobody's really listening. And uh, so house shows are, are awesome for that. Absolutely. And so uh, recently there's been a lot of, music things going on columbus is primarily where uh, i based the podcast out of columbus mississippi and so uh one of the bars recently sold to a new hand it's a historical bar uh for the blues many blues players in its history uh they got their nickname by playing in that bar and the new owner decided that he would change the name and the reason the bar was sold was because the Rob Swindle, I've had him on the podcast. He's battling leukemia. Mm. And so that he's getting out, you know, and uh, it's sold. And now the name is changing, and it's almost like deleting history, and it's like just a slap to the face. Yes. And, uh, you know, and like Rob is a music player himself, and he has hosted open mics, and it has been such a place of nurturing new talent and, like, there's not just new talent there. There are veterans who come in to sit and listen to these new players uh-huh. and teach them, okay, you know, how to have mic presence or, you know, how to yeah. build how to build a better chord on the guitar or how to better. And so it was a great place to, uh, you know, um, hone your skill. And 
-hmm. so that's sad and there's a amphitheater being built and uh government within the city uh the you know how they're always going back and forth well they they couldn't agree on it and so they fudged their numbers and now the amphitheater is for them right now it's not going to be finished and i wrote a song uh, it's called behind the red of my eyes and, and that's what that song was about it's kind of like enough it's it's uh -huh. it's it's talking about you know what are we doing uh, we're we're taken away from the creative we're taken away from the artist uh, we need these things but to finish up with what will johnson was saying about the area um he said that uh it was like chasing a ghost that's that's the way it feels and it's because of the history of the blues in columbus and um I mean, you got Catfish Alley. That's a blues marker. Uh, there's several in Alabama, but most of them are predominantly in Mississippi. There's like five in Europe, and they're just historical landmark locations all throughout the state uh, for the blues, man. And so uh, it's it's a cool area to live in, and uh, it is that idea of just chasing ghosts every day. As you drive by and you look to the left and there's Catfish Alley or uh, Elbow Room, it wasn't a historical uh, marker, but it was an historical landmark for the blues. As mentioned, uh, when it first opened, it was had maybe kind of a jute joint feel. Um, and these blues players, they would come in and they would teach each other how to play and that's where they would get their nickname. And so it was a real cool thing about the Elbow. Um, back to the show. When I was reading about enough, and I cannot wait till I get your album in the mail, I am, uh -huh. I cannot wait to hear in grace. And so the other uh, song I wanted to ask you about, Tree of Life. Yes, yes. So the amount of gun violence that's happening in this country, it just it leaves me speechless. It breaks my heart. It's happening everywhere, and when the Tree of Life shooting happened something really cracked even further in me because having gun violence in schools with children was pretty horrible. Having Gabrielle Gifford shot, you know, and she was a good Congresswoman, um, having sports stadiums, movie theaters, malls. But when it started hitting churches and temples, yeah, something just cracked in me because churches, temples, houses of worship, are the, if there's one place that's supposed to be safe and sacred, houses of worship are supposed to be. Absolutely. And so, so you know, I, I wrote about the church in South Carolina as well as the temple in Pennsylvania in the song because those two houses of worship were just totally violated by gun violence. And so, you know, out of what cracked inside came the song. And I wrote it as a prayer to end gun violence, you know, wishing for this to happen never again and looking at, you know, what happened to the 93-year-old Holocaust survivor in the Tree of Life shooting, what happened to the minister in the South Carolina shooting, you know, and what it, did, what it teaches our children. Unfortunately, it teaches our children to be scared and that the world is in a safe place. And so anyhow, that song is very powerful and has gotten a lot of response. And I had the opportunity just about, 
a month ago, maybe three weeks ago, where two singer-songwriter colleagues of mine who started a coffee house at a temple in Newburyport, Massachusetts, and this is really interesting, I didn't know till I was there that this was the case, when the Tree of Life shooting happened, that is when they started the coffee house as a way of just bringing people in the community together, of the temple community. So that night when I performed and I had two songs to perform, I chose back to back to do the Tree of Life song because I'd never done it in a temple and the David Ortiz, Why Do We Shoot Our Heroes song. And it was and I perfect. Back to back and, and people were just really moved by it. And I was really moved by the privilege of doing it. So, you know, both of those songs are a response to a kind of gun violence, which I pray to God we find some way to get to the root of and stop. Because for, you know, to have other countries putting out warnings, telling people not to go to the United States because it's dangerous, because of random gun violence happening in public places, including houses of worships and schools, it is so sad for that to be what people now see of this country. It really is. It really is. Um... Just, just so much has changed over the past ten years on that landscape. I mean, like you said, you—it's almost impossible to feel safe going to a movie theater. Exactly. <laughs> I went to a movie myself last night because I really wanted to see the David Crosby movie, and I had the space after I finished with my clients last night. So I said, "I'm going to just go." And when I first went into the movie theater. I was the only person there, and I was, like, scared. Like, am I going to be safe? Eventually, like, some more people came. It wasn't that many. I was shocked how few people were there. But then, you know, I leave the movie theater, and I have to walk down the street to my car, and I safe. It's, like, it's horrible to have to walk around feeling like that. But a lot of people feel that a lot more because you honestly don't know what's going to happen when or where. Yeah. And so you wrap in grace your album, your latest album, up with uh, one of my favorite Beatles songs. Mm-hmm. And by listening to you tell tales from uh, the stories behind the song, it, it's the uh, it's the perfect close. And so you wrap you wrapped it up with Imagine. Yes, absolutely. I love that song, and it's a song that tries to bring vision and hope and inspiration to us in in. And in these troubled times, I think we really need it even more. And in fact, you you don't know the, the song that precedes it that's called Light Up the Love, but Light Up the Love and Imagine are actually a pair of songs that are sort of very simpatico. There's a man in California, he's, he was in San Diego, and now he's in Huntington Beach, um, and his name is Jerry, and he founded something first called Heartfelt Helpings, which helped the homeless. He repurposed food so that the food that would get thrown out was actually given to people that needed food, which is a really wonderful thing to do. And he wanted to do something greater. So he came up with this idea of the global light up the love movement, because love is the one superpower we all have. So if people can learn to be love every day in every way, we can transform our lives in the world because that's really what we need and that's what imagine is all about as well so he asked me to write um, the global anthem for the light up the love movement and there were 17 different principles of lighting up the love so i wrote light up the love which does just that so when the women in music gathering did our showcase at the burren last november when we closed our show First, we did Light Up the Love, because I wrote it for the audience to sing along with the chorus, which 
helps them become global ambassadors to Light Up the Love. And then we close with Imagine after that, because those two songs go hand in hand and they're both uplifting and they're really encouraging people to help create a positive, better world where instead of having gun violence and tear down epidemics and all those kinds of things, we're coming together and we're working together and we can feel inspired and we can feel love and we can feel peace. So those two songs together are lined up to close the album just as in many shows. That's how I choose to close my shows. Absolutely. And so I wanted to ask you this is, um, Working in Fenway Park and being a Boston Red Sox fan. Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit about the curse of the Bambino and how it's breaking. <laughs> well, when I was a little girl, I was very lucky to get a job at Fenway Park. Um, in fact, think of this in today's world. I was like, you know, 12 or 13 years old, and I would take public transportation into the heart of Boston to go to the Red Sox game by myself with nobody helping watch over me. And, you know, I'd earn some money doing whatever and buy a ticket in the bleachers, which in those days were that expensive. And I happened to be lucky enough to get a job working for the, co the people that did you know, the commissary at the, the name at the time is called Harry M. Stevens. So they sold the food, like the hot dogs and the souvenirs. And I had a souvenir stand and, and worked at minimum wage. But I think the Red Sox had had a really, really bad team for years and years and years. And somewhere 75 or 76, they had a really good year and they won the pennant. But, but between then and the, the last decade, there wasn't a whole lot of excitement for the Red Sox. They just seemed to always have a bad team or just never be able to get to the World Series. And I feel like the curse got broken because in this decade, I think the Red Sox have, have gone to the World Series four times and they, they had an amazing team last year and won it. So even though the team is having not the greatest year this year, it seems like the whole, you know, the the blessing of the Red Sox has returned instead of the curse of the, the Vampino. Yeah. Well, that'll do it. Linda, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me for an episode of Porch Talk. My pleasure, and thank you so much for taking the time to include me. Yes, ma'am. Is there anything else that you would like to add or subtract before we uh, before we part ways? I would just um, invite people to go to my website, lindamarksmusic.com. And if anyone's interested in the Women in Music Gathering idea, it's something that I'd love to help people grow in other parts of the country. We're actually looking to grow a chapter in Florida right now. Mm -hmm. So that's a project underway. What part and of Florida? What part? I'm starting in the Fort Myers area. Cindy Dadamo, who's my social media publicist, she's in Lady Lake, Florida, which isn't too far from Fort Myers. And um, a dear friend of mine has recently moved to Florida, although he's a few hours away. Florida is so big that, you know, it's easy to be three hours from somewhere when you're in Florida. But but anyhow, we're looking at, at Fort Myers sort of as a gathering point. But if we have a kind of weekend conference where we try to bring people together to talk with each other and support each other, much of the way we founded Women in Music Gathering here in Massachusetts, and then do a few concerts where some women from the Boston area come on down and some women from different parts of Florida come together and we do a joint concert together. Um, the idea was to consider the Fort Myers area and perhaps, you know, somewhere within an hour's radius around there too. So that's the idea we have right now. 
but some of the people I know who are involved in, in music in Florida are not just there because it's such a big state. Okay. So anyhow, we'll see what grows from that. And the other thing I just put forward, if anyone happens to be in Boston on October 13th, the show that I'm doing at the Burren when In Grace is released is going to be fantastic. And look for In Grace on all platforms as of September 1st. And my 2020, the piano album is full of amazing stories. So I'm really looking forward to completing that album too. Absolutely. Well, Linda, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me today over the phone. This has been another episode of Porch Talk. News and notes. Thank you all so much for listening to the show. In close, I would just ask that you would uh, subscribe, rate, and review the show. Tell a friend about Porch Talk. Um, Easy, easy to do. This will be a memorable episode. Every now and then, the guest will... And I'll have a conversation, and somehow it gets transferred to a higher plane of uh, just thinking. Uh, I enjoyed some of the conversations behind her songwriting and uh, the thoughtfulness of it, of the lyrics. I received her album in the mail and got to listen to these tracks and sit down with them. And, uh, I mean, it's uh, you can get the feel. Uh, so she does a good job in her thoughtful lyrics, and the music is laid out nicely. So, to close with some notes, we're going to play two songs. One is going to be off In Grace. That'll be enough. But we're going to start off with uh, the tribute song to David Ortiz. It's called Heroes. So, peace out. Greater good Now David 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.